This morning, our message, moving to the next little section here, we're not getting very far today, but is living out our true identity in Christ. The identity God has given to us. The identity that truly is who we are and who God made us to be. That's the message this morning. Daniel chapter 1. Let's look, please, just, and I'd like to reread verse 7 as we begin the message today. Living out your true identity. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. And let's pray. Father, we ask for your help today to understand who we are, who you are as our creator and our savior and the one who loves us to the end. And Lord, we pray, God, that we would not allow this world to shake our faith, but that we would live out who you truly made us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the bottom line is the world is at work to destroy our faith. This world we're living in is hostile to the Word of God. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. So this world wants to crush our faith, wants to wipe clean our true God-given identity that the Lord has given to us. This world is at war. We are at war. That's 2 Timothy. We're to be a good soldier and fight the good fight of faith. Now here was Daniel and his three friends, just teenagers, in this hostile culture of Babylon. What does Babylon mean? It means confusion. <laughs> because that's where the languages were confused. And Babylon wanted to confuse Daniel and his friends of their faith. Wanted to present another worldview to them that they would accept. Wanted to shake out of them their heart for God. Their understanding that they were Israelites. And that they were to glorify God. Babylon means confusion. And there's a lot of confusion today. We're living in a modern day Babylon. New York City in America. And when I thought of confusion, I thought of how the world is trying to confuse the faith of our young people today. We need to be aware of this. Two quick illustrations about this on how it's very confusing for people. It's very confusing for young people to even embrace Christianity because of the confusion that's out there in our culture. For example, genders. So they say... They're teaching our young people that when you're born, you receive one of two sexes. You're either male or female. But then as you grow up, you get to choose which gender you are. And there's like 58 at least. And they'll probably come up with more through time. Now, wouldn't that be confusing if you're a six or seven-year-old and you have to actually figure out what your gender is? That's total confusion. Then I saw this this week, and I mentioned something about this a few weeks ago, but cisgenderism. Remember what we said about cisgender. Cisgender is when you are living out the way you were actually born. Did you know that that's cisgender? That means, so if you're, you were born a man and you still view yourself as a man, you're cisgender. If you were born a woman and you see yourself as a woman, 
You're cisgender, okay? I think all of us here are cisgender, okay? We got that. But this is what they say. This is what they're going to teach our kids. A cisgender person, some scientists believe that cisgenderism is a result of a fault in the brain of cisgender people. So the reason you're cisgender and you're living out the, 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 the sex with which you are born is you have a fault in your brain. And then it went on to say, no one is sure what causes cisgenderism. No one's sure what causes this fault in the brain. This, oh. <laughs> we know what causes it, right? God made us this way. <laughs> and then it says, there is no known cure. As if you're living out what, the way you were born, you're, there's some kind of, you're sick. But there's, and there's no cure for it. This is what our children are going to be taught. This is really confusing if you don't have a biblical foundation of who you are. Another example of this would be abortion. Abortion is a very confusing subject for many people. Of course, pro-abortion, what's a very emotional subject, we know. It's very volatile. You try to discuss it with somebody and you can easily get into a fight, you know, with them. But I have a friend who claims to be a Christian, who strongly believes in abortion. So to prove their point to me, they sent me 10 points with Bible verses that, from their standpoint, proved that life in the womb was not precious. And they used verses like war-type verses. Remember how in Scripture it talks about the judgment of God during certain times of warfare that the babies would be sliced open from the mothers and the babies would be dashed even against the stone. And thing. I mean, there's some pretty tough language in the Bible. So verses like this say, you see that? God doesn't value life in the womb. Life in the womb is not precious and that God allows abortion and this kind of thing. I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable because to me it's not a doubt. To me it's very clear. Abortion is murder. To me that's very clear. So here's 10 verses, so to speak, saying that abortion is the Bible way. So I'm wondering, I knew my friend did not write, did not do their own study. <laughs> I knew they didn't get this on their own. So I put in one of the points into the search engine to see where they may have gotten this. And lo and behold, up popped the article where all 10 points were cut and pasted right out and given to me. So I, then I wondered if the person even read the verses, but nevertheless, whatever. You know what the website was? The website was the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The whole point of the website was to get people away from God. I read the rest of the article, and literally my heart broke. It broke because it went on to say that God is the biggest mass murderer in human history because of the flood of Noah, the extermination of the Canaanites, and other things. The God of the Bible, it says, quote, and I'm quoting, is the greatest mass murderer. And I also looked at this website, and you can go there and see how blasphemous and how hateful toward God it is. It's called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I went back to my friend. I said, how could you take a website of God-haters 
and stand with them against somebody who believes the Bible and is standing on the Bible. It really broke my heart. But this is a, the reason I'm using this, this is a confused person who thinks they're very, very right. This is the kind of thing our young people are going to be facing in their stand for God. This is what Daniel and his friends, no doubt, must have been facing a world system that was trying to wipe clean their faith. So let's, let's move uh, into this. Nebuchadnezzar has a brilliant plan. What is his plan? To transform the identity of these four Jewish exiles, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. What is he going to do? Well, first of all, he, he finds the most skilled young people that he could possibly find. They were of the royal seed, probably descendants of King Hezekiah. They were skillful. Notice their description in verse 4. Can you read that verse with me? Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. Children without any physical blemish. Now, the word eunuch is mentioned a number of times here. I don't believe that Daniel and his friends had their masculinity removed or that they were emasculated. I do believe that the word eunuch, if you actually look it up, it's sometimes used to describe people who are married, but they serve at the pleasure of the king. The word eunuch is used to describe Potiphar. Remember Potiphar, who was one of the captain, captains of the guard for Pharaoh, and he was married, and we know that he was married. Nevertheless, children with no physical blemish, so I believe that points to them not being emasculated. They were in excellent health. They were mentally sharp. They had ability to comprehend. They were knowledgeable. They had social poise. They could learn quickly and retain that knowledge. That's the kind of people that Nebuchadnezzar found skillful. Secondly, he sought to indoctrinate them into all the learning of the Chaldeans. Now, who else in Bible times was indoctrinated in the ways of the world but stood tall for God? You guys know. Moses. That's right. In all the learning of the Egyptians. Well, Daniel is taught all the learning of the Chaldeans. That's, the word Chaldean could just mean Babylonian culture, but it could mean even specifically the elite system of learning in Babylon. The Chaldeans was one of the class of people that was around the king in chapter 2, verse 2. That word is used in that way. So Nebuchadnezzar wants to indoctrinate them into the language, the learning, the literature of Babylon. They were taught every aspect of the learning. Some of it, no doubt, was good and interesting. They learned about astronomy and math and agriculture, and architecture. But mixed with that, they learned about Babylonian paganism and astrology as well. Thirdly, they would eat the very best of the king's food. It was a privileged place that they had to eat good food. Good food is expensive, <laughs> even in our city. Somebody said the other day, you want to go to that restaurant across the street? Well, that's kind of pricey. You know, let's go to this one. You know, but they were eating the best. They were eating the expensive food. 
And that was to break them down to embrace all of Babylonianism. And fourthly, they were given new names. This was to refashion their loyalty. This was to turn their love away from God and turn their love to Babylon. These names are very significant, I believe. Now, notice what it says in verse 7. It says, unto whom the prince of the eunuch gave names. So he gave names. Now, what if I just came up to you and said, uh, brother, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name you Fred. No longer will you be Ian. You're Fred. And what are you going to tell me? Beat it, buddy. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm not changing my name for you. Why would you say that? Because you would say, what right do I have to come up to you and say, you're Fred now? I have no right at all. <laughs> so you see, to name somebody, to give somebody a name means you have authority in their life. And so... Nebuchadnezzar is taking authority to change their names. And if you even look in Daniel chapter 4, verse 8, look what, Daniel, what, look what Nebuchadnezzar even says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. He says, but at that last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. He named Daniel after his God. So these birth names are very significant. I believe they highlight four key areas of their identity and ours as image bearers of God. I see in these four names, and I couldn't get past them actually, because of the importance of this name change for them. It was to wash away their faith and to establish a new loyalty in their lives. And so in these four names, I think we see almost a full-orbed kind of a identity that God gives to all of us in the names of these four. And changing their names was meant to overthrow their God-given identity. And here's the whole point of the message today, is that we must live out our true God-given identity of who we are at birth and as His by creation. And that's what these four were able to do as well. Because we're going to face a world in the marketplace out there who will fundamentally disagree with us. And they will question us, accuse us, and get mad at us, and call us names. But we must, in love and yet courage, stand without compromise and somehow engage a pagan culture that less and less wants to hear what we have to say. So there's four things today about the names of these four young men. Daniel's name reminds us that God is our ultimate authority. Because what does his name mean? God is my judge. So our ultimate authority is God. We are accountable to God. We are not our own authority. We're not to live this life just doing as we please, but what pleases Him. We will give an account to God. That must be a key part of our sense of who I am. I'm created by God to please Him and serve Him, and I'm going to give an account to Him. Now, the world wants to just say, you're crazy, but that's the Bible. This is the foundation of true identity. 
image bearers of God. We have one life to live. We must be born again. We must be delivered from our sin. We must turn, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe that Jesus Christ died for us. And that as he died for us, we should die for him and live as to him and please him in every movement of our mind, in every pulse of my heart. God is my judge. Each of these names, I tried to find one verse that I thought was very significant to highlight and illustrate the beauty of this name. So I would like for us to go please to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you could turn there. Those who are watching us on Zoom, if you could turn to us, turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me just quote a few verses. God is my judge. That's Daniel's name. Could he forget that and live out his true identity? No. He had to remember that he was going to stand and give an account to God. That's what the scripture says clearly. This is inarguable as a Bible believer. Romans chapter 14, verse 11 says, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. Every one of us shall give an account to himself to God. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, as believers, we will go through a judgment, not over our salvation, but over our works. Our works will be judged. And that's what this passage is talking about. So this is the believer's judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 11. It says, for other foundation, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. In other words, all of our labors are going to be declared and openly visible before the eyes of God. The day shall declare it, the day of, the, of our judgment, because it shall be revealed by fire. Our works are going to go through the fire of God's judgment. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, in other words, he hath built thereupon, built upon what? Verse number 10, 11, built upon Jesus Christ, the foundation. So he's clearly talking about Christians here. We're not, we're not judged for our salvation. That's been judged by our our sins were judged by Jesus at the cross. We will be judged for the works that we have done. Our works, he says, will be made manifest and will pass through the fire. And he says, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So our judgment is really a gain of reward. Or the next verse, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That is a loss of reward, but he shall be saved yet by the skin of his teeth. Okay, but that's kind of the idea, yet so as by fire. So again, he's not talking about a believer losing their salvation at judgment. It's saying a believer can lose his reward. And so the point is, is we must build with the right materials that can endure the fire. And what are those materials? 
those are the gold, the silver, the precious stones. What are the what are the materials that don't endure the fire? The wood, the hay, and the stubble. What are you building with? And I believe ultimately the good materials that endure the fire, God is not judging how big our whatever we have is. He's not going to judge how big our church is, for example, in the end of the day. He's going to judge how pure were our motives, how loving is our labor. Purity of motive, love in our labor for him and toward man. God isn't going to judge for how much money you had in the bank account. He will judge how did you work? What was the motive of your work? He's not going to judge how, how, how big something is or how much you have. God doesn't judge with a scale and with a ruler. God judges with a fire. And the fire has really no... It, it, it doesn't matter how big something is or how much you have. It's what you built with. So may God help us. God is my judge. But, of course, Daniel's name was changed to Bell, protect the king. Bell, protect the king. Now, what does that name sound like to you? Bell is the name of a Babylonian god. Bell, protect the king. What does that name sound like? It sounds like a prayer. That's exactly right. It's a prayer. So they're getting Daniel to trust another deity, a pagan god. Daniel's name is changed to Belshazzar. Bel, protect the king. There's pressure upon him to pray to the Babylonian god. For who? The Babylonian king. In order to build what? The Babylonian kingdom. Not to pray to God, to build up God's kingdom. You see, the world wants to shift our purpose for life. Keep your identity as a Christian to pray to God and labor to build of his kingdom for his glory. Now, there's a whole lot that could be said about Bel. Bel is the Babylonian name for the god Baal. And we're familiar with Baal. Baal was a fertility god, very popular in Canaan. And just to summarize, I won't say much about this. I just want to say this. It was Baal, the false pagan religion of Baal that infiltrated the temple in Jerusalem that actually led Daniel to become an exile. It led to the judgment. It's going to ultimately be one of the main reasons that God is going to completely destroy the Sol Solomon's temple was Baal worship coming into the temple. So think of the irony. Daniel is being pressured to pray to a false god that was actually one of the key reasons he was in Babylon in the first place. <laughs> that's, the, that's the deviousness of the world. So they were being taught to pray in loyalty for the kingdom of man. And some of the most elaborate, impressive buildings, no doubt, in Babylon at this time were the temples. Here's a temple to a, a simulation of a temple to Bel Marduk which is this God that Daniel was named after to pray to. And these are some of the symbols of this deity, this pagan God, a dragon, which of course reminds us of Satan, the temple or the dragon of Marduk. Marduk would be like another name for Bel, but just like 
Jehovah would be one name for God and Elohim would be another name for the same God. So Bel and Marduk were two different names for the same God. Sometimes he was called Bel Marduk. So I'm not an expert on all of the Babylonian pagan gods, so I, I can't get into it too much. But this is an interesting verse in Isaiah where Babylon would be destroyed, and he says, Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Nebo is another deity, and of course Nebuchadnezzar was named after this deity. Their idols were upon beasts and upon the cattle. And so the whole idea there is they believed, the Babylonians believed that the success of a nation actually depended on their gods. And if their gods were destroyed, their nation would be destroyed. So their gods were very important to them. So Daniel, to live out his true identity, had to believe God was his ultimate authority. The second thing, Hananiah emphasizes God is our ultimate source of grace. God is our source of grace. Hananiah's, mean, Hananiah's name means Jehovah is gracious. The word in Hananiah speaks of the compassion and the mercy of God. This name reminds Hananiah how God dealt with him in grace and compassion. And the world wants you to forget the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Let it, they want to crush the mercy and grace of God, of Jesus Christ from our lives. They don't want to hear about Jesus. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Now, I love this verse. Here's the one verse I want to focus in on, on Hananiah's name. Can you read it with me? It says, the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Now, who wrote that? Numbers chapter 6, verse 25. Who wrote that? Moses. Did Moses know anything about the face of God shining on him? Yeah, he experienced the face of God. And when God's face, what, what does Moses connect the face of God shining on him? That is what? A demonstration of his grace. Do you see that connection? The light of God's face shining is connected to the very grace of his presence. And this is called the ironic blessing upon the people. Moses had so been blessed by the presence of God, the face of God, he wanted everyone to experience the presence of God. And that is the grace of God being shown to us. So just as God's glory caused Moses' face to shine, the Lord, in this prayer, may his face shine on you. And may he show his grace to you. Don't forget it. This is our identity as children of God, that God has shown grace to us, the grace of salvation. So that's Hananiah's name, but the world wants to change his name from Hananiah to Shadrach. Shadrach means what? The command of Aku. And there's a, another meaning to this name. And I, I, from, I have a number of commentaries, and I tried to get the best meaning for each name. The best meaning I could find was Shadrach means the command of Aku. But there's like a supplemental meaning, which means I am very fearful. Now, put those two together. The command of Aku means you should what? Obey Aku. <laughs> Listen to what he says and do it. And you should do it with what, should, what will happen if you don't be afraid. So they want you to be afraid and obey the Babylonian gods. Shadrach. That's what that name means. 
So they wanted to strip Hananiah of his identity that God has been gracious. God has shined his face to me to obey. And you better, if you don't, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> the gods of the world. They were being taught to obey the Babylonian gods. The third name is Mishael. Mishael means who is like God. And it emphasizes that God is exclusively glorious. In other words, who is like God? What's the answer? Who is like God? No one is like God. There's none like him. There is none like you. Wait, sing now. I'm singing for you. God is exclusively, incomparably holy, powerful, wise, loving, gracious. There's none like God. Who is like God? That's what Michelle's name reminds us of. Who is like God? Who is like God to save us through the fire as these three Hebrew children went? Who is like God? And here's the verse that I focus on to think of. Who is like God? Can you read that verse with me? Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God is glorious, and his glory is his alone, so that he deserves the worship and praise alone. But they changed Mishael's name to Meshach, which is basically the same name, but for the Babylonian God. So it was a pagan equivalent to his birth name. Meshach is not who is like the Lord, but who is like Aku. They were trying to get Meshach to see the incomparable power of a Babylonian deity. And he was not. So rather than honor the glory of God, they wanted him to honor the uniqueness of this false God and worship and honor this God. Because, and the other name of what this could well mean is, I am of little account. In other words, you don't matter, so just do it. <laughs> do as I say. Who is like Aku, a comparison to him? You're of little account. And you know, you think about that. Though God is incomparable, we're not of little account to him. He loves us very much. So, these names are very significant. They provide almost like a full-orbed view of who we are as his image bearers. Daniel, that God is our ultimate authority. God is our judge. Hananiah, God is our source of grace. He is the one we go to for love and mercy. Mishael, there's no one like God. We worship and honor our God. And then the final name here is Azariah. Azariah speaks of God's sufficient strength. He is all-sufficient, powerful. He is a great God, and we're to serve him. He's our helper. That's what the name means. Azariah means the Lord has helped. Now, can you go with me to this verse? Go to Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 11. Second Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 11. And here is from the life of King Asa. And Asa, in this passage of Scripture, in Second Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 11, cries unto the Lord, 
and he says to God, and this is good for a small church like us in the midst of this Babylonian city that we don't know what's going to happen to. We're in the middle of something and we don't know where we're going. And the people leading us, I don't know if they know where we're going either. But God is God. He rules in the king. Isn't it good to know that God rules in the kingdoms of men? So whether it's the mayor's office here or Albany or the White House, God is ruling. And he will help. So here's what Asa cries. Can we all read that verse together? Second Chronicles 14, verse 11 says, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. I love that. Let not man prevail. It's nothing for God to help with those who are great or those who are small, those who have power, those who don't. The battle is the Lord's. We rest on him. He says twice, it is nothing for God to help. And then he says, help us, O Lord our God. That's the name Azariah, help. As it says in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 10. And 13 and 14, God promises through the prophet, I will help thee. God is our help. He's our strength. We need to cry out to God for help. I have in my sermon notes today, daily headlines seem to shock our soul. And I, I wrote that and I looked at the headlines today and I saw this weekend, there have been over three dozen shootings in our city. A number dead. More than 20, I believe, injured. Something like that. Shocking. Yesterday on our homeless outreach, we were right here at Grand Central Station, and we gave a bag to one of the ladies sitting there who was homeless. She said, you can't go down there. There was just a shooting right down there on the platform. New Yorkers are fleeing our city. They're saying the tax base is leaving because 1% of the New Yorkers pay almost half the taxes of the state. The economy could well be tanking. Crime is skyrocketing. Drug addicts are shooting up needles on the street. Sex criminals are being put in high-class hotels right around parks where children play or schools where they'll go to school. Buildings have been burned. Stores have been shuttered. Law enforcement in all of this is being defunded and demonized. Oh, wow, things are going great. <laughs> they tell me something good. I will. God is our help. <laughs> He's going to help. We need his help. Our city needs his help. We need revival. We need God to come down. It is, it is not of God. God can help those who have no power. We have no power. Help us, Lord. Lead us, God. Don't just run. Ask God to lead you. Provide for us, Lord, through this hard time. If you have a job, thank God. Some people don't. Pray for them. Protect us, Lord. You know what I believe? I believe where there's heartache, where there's heartbreak, and we're going to see a lot of that because of the violence, the, econ the economy being hurt, people losing their, their apartments, their homes maybe being foreclosed, their businesses 
having to shut her down. There's going to be a lot of pain. May God use us to bring the gospel to those people who are wondering, where can I go? We need to go to God. We need to turn to the Lord in this city. May God use you. So they changed Azariah's name. No, no, you don't go to God for help. Your name is now Abednego, which is the servant of Nebo. Servant of Nebo. This is the God of which Nebuchadnezzar was named after. Neb, after Nebo. He was the shining one. Oh, go to the shining pagan deity. No, he's a lie. He's a false god. He's not a true god. So you see, the Babylonian emphasis here and Nebuchadnezzar's training was trying to get these people of God to turn their eyes away from the Lord and put them on the Babylonian gods to serve them, to worship them, to honor them, to fear them, to obey them. And they said, no. He said, we are not going to lose our identity and become like the people of Babylon. And our verse in the middle of this chapter, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, what does it say about Daniel? Can you read Daniel chapter 1, verse 8? It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. Now, we're going to talk more about that specifically next week. But I believe that, you know, Daniel and his friends could not control what other people called them. And sometimes in this book, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are called by the pagans around them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel is sometimes called Belshazzar. Belshazzar. But Daniel doesn't refer to himself as that. Toward the end of the book especially, he refers to himself as I, Daniel. I, Daniel. I am the one who will stand accountable before God. And in Daniel chapter 5, after a number of great demonstrations of faith, and God even turning the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to the, to the Lord, in Daniel chapter 5, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, look what he says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 13. Daniel chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Then was Daniel brought before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel? I like that. Even the Babylonian king doesn't call him by his Babylonian name. He knew Daniel kept his identity. And if you go to Daniel chapter 12, go to the end of Daniel, where... Michael the archangel is speaking, and he calls Daniel, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Oh, Daniel, shut up the words. And then in verse 5, then I, Daniel, look. In other words, Daniel maintained his integrity and his identity as a child of God. So, beloved, let us live out our true identity. And let us remember that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world the Son of God. He is the ultimate judge. We will stand before the Lord Jesus in that day of believer's judgment. And the unsaved will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. He said, all judgment is given unto me. My God is a judge. 
And his name is Jesus Christ. Our Lord is gracious. His name is Jesus Christ. Who is like God? There's none like our God and none like our Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh through a virgin birth, went to the cross and rose again. And he is our helper. Jesus Christ will help. I love the story. I know you do too, where the man had his son demon-possessed going into different uh, schizophrenic type of, uh, of a fits, and he would be thrown into the fire, into the water. In other words, there were suicidal episodes this boy would go through, you know. He brought him to the disciples, and the disciples, we can't help him. So he brought him to Jesus, and the father said, with such passion, he said, Lord, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus did. He had the compassion, and he showed that power to help. And so he'll do it for us. Whatever you're going through today, look to the Lord. And don't let this world strip away your faith and crush your identity, because we are truly his. And let's pray. Let's stand together as we pray today. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and all your grace and your glory. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our great King, God manifest in the flesh. Thank you, Heavenly Father, the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and that you are, and, and that Lord is the Spirit. Thank you, O Holy Spirit of God, dwelling in us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh God, you are our judge to whom we're accountable. We stand before you and we thank you, Jesus, that one day we'll breathe our last year and we'll stand in your presence and be like you. We pray, God, that our labor would be in love and for your glory, that all of our labors would endure the fire for you to receive the glory from them, O oh Lord. So we thank you, God. Continue to bless us even now in just a moment as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.